welcome to Borderlines, the podcast to talk about immigration-related issues. I'm Deanna Okunachov. I'm Steve Mirez. I'm Peter Edelman. Now we're joined today by Lodra Sadrahashmi, who's an executive member of the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers and a longtime colleague of all of ours. So we're very happy to have you here with us today, Lobat. Thank you. Thank you. This is my yeah, first podcast. <laughs> that's great. So has the added pressure that I have to engage in banter. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, what we're talking about today are a variety of themes related to refugee claims in Canada. Lobat was one of the authors on a report by the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers calling for changes in the system. Uh, we're also going to discuss and frame some of the discussion around the recent controversy in the media about whether uh, one of the Canada's ministers, federal ministers, Marianne Monsef, could lose her citizenship as a result of, um, well, it's not clear to us exactly what the alleged misrepresentation could be, because uh, we don't know what was in her refugee claim. But on the issue more broadly and how other people are currently facing citizenship revocation, why don't we start there? And maybe Lobat, if you could describe the current regime in which a Canadian citizenship could lose their citizenship for misrepresentation. Sure. Um, yeah, and what happened is the, previous, the Conservative government made major changes to citizenship revocation. Um, when the Liberals came in, the, part of the promises of their government was to change, like to roll back all these changes that the Conservative government had done on citizenship. And for the most part, they made a lot of changes uh, in their bill. Uh, But the one part that they didn't change, that the Conservatives brought in, was the process for revocation for misrepresentation. So um, prior to the changes that the Conservatives brought in, you could get a hearing at the federal court if there was an allegation that you had misrepped. If a citizen, there was an allegation against a citizen that you could misrep, you could have a hearing. There no longer is a hearing for um, a citizen who is alleged to have misrepresented. So somebody, what happens is they get a notice, uh, they don't necessarily get full disclosure, and they're given 60 days to write a response. And the same person that gives them their notice is the same person that also decides their case. So it's, there's no independent tribunal, there's no court, um, and the current government is actively revoking people's citizenships right now under this process, a process that they themselves said was uh, dictatorial uh, when they were in opposition. And even now, even very recently, publicly, Minister McCallum has said that it's not a fair process, that there needs to be an appeal. So let's break down that process a little. So you said someone will receive a letter and it won't even have full disclosure. So what sort of a letter, if somebody had, well, just what, what would they get in that letter from the government? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that's helpful is for us to go back and look at what the process used to look like. Um, and previously, it was actually a three-stage process. And so you would start out by getting a notice. You could then ask, with respect to the revocations and, and the basis for revo- revoking citizenship, is that you originally obtained it through misrepresentations or, or fraud. In other words, you, you said provided information that was false to get your citizenship in the first place. 
and you would then have the opportunity to go to federal court. And so, and have, you, have you done that process? No, Do I you haven't. Want to okay, so I mean, the, under the process in the federal court, you actually get a full hearing in federal court, and the federal court decides whether or not there was a misrepresentation, whether or not you, uh, in, in that those, there are facts upon which citizenship could be revoked. Then it would go to the governor and council in cabinet who would ultimately make the decision. So the entire cabinet would decide to revoke someone's citizenship. This was a big deal. Now, a single officer mm-hmm. sends off a notice. You get a letter that basically says, hey, we're thinking that you misrepresented to get your citizenship and we're thinking of taking it away. Why, co- should, why should we not do that? And coinciding with that change, there was a huge increase in the number of revocation applications sent by the government. Like, I think it was something like 65 people over a 40-year period before uh, the conservative conservatives were in office. And I remember at one point in, I think, 2012, Jason Kenney saying that there were 11,000 investigations underway. Do you have any idea how many people have received uh, revocation letters? Uh, I know that there was just recently in the media that 206 people have had their citizenship actually stripped. Uh, And then they have performance targets. And right now they are initiating between 40 to 60 uh, revocation, like they're sending out 40 to 60 revocation notifications a month. Okay. And so under the current process, Uh, A citizenship and immigration officer will send a letter to a person saying, we think you lied. Give us 60 or you have 60 days or 30 days to provide written submissions. Do those people have a right to a hearing, an in-person hearing? No, they don't. And they don't have necessarily a right to even explain the humanitarian factors in their case. On, On top of that, and what's going on right now is that there is a constitutional challenge to that whole revocation process. And so if you get that notice and you have a lawyer that understands that there is this constitutional challenge that where people people's revocation processes have been stayed pending the constitutional challenge, your lawyer will apply to court and your process will also be stayed. But there are all sorts of people who are going through with the process, not knowing that all they need to do is apply to the federal court and get a stay. It's automatic. Mm -hmm. And so what was filed this week on Monday by the BC Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers was a motion in their ongoing litigation that had previously been paused when the new government came to power, um, where in this motion they're saying, stop revoking while the... um, while this constitutional constitutional challenge is pending. And it's not as if um, both the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers and the BCCLA had met with the government and had written the government asking them to pause the revocations. So if somebody um, isn't part of that class or that consolidated litigation, and let's say that they didn't retain a lawyer and their citizenship is revoked, at that point, can they appeal or join the class after their citizenship's been revoked? Well, this is the problem, is that once your citizenship has been revoked, you can then judicially review the revocation, but you're judicially reviewing it from the position of a non-citizen. 
So you, you're not judicially reviewing it as a citizen. Can I just go back to, like, you talked about what the test was previously for misrepresentation. Um, in the changes, was there a shifting of that standard in terms of what would constitute a misrepresentation for citizenship? Well, yes and no, in the sense that no, there was not a shifting of the test itself. But what's unclear is whether there was a shifting or a change in the admissibility of the evidence, because a trial in federal court has very strict admissibility standards mm -hmm. and processes in terms of what's admissible as evidence and how the process works. An immigration officer, if they apply, or a citizenship officer, I guess in this case, if they apply the same standard that a visa office applies in deciding whether someone misre misrepresented, that's a bit of a free-for-all oh, I called your uncle's second cousin and he said that mm -hmm. blah, 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 right? That's the kind of stuff mm -hmm. that we see in visa I, applications. I looked at your LinkedIn profile and you weren't So here. it's like it's actually a lowering of the standard down basically to a reasonable grounds kind of a level as opposed well, to... I don't think there was any change in the standard. It's just that because the process is now not done by a court and is these individual officers... That's what's making it so that, you know, yeah. And during that judicial review, once the citizenship's been revoked, you're unable to introduce new evidence. Yeah. It would be like, for example, on a murder case, instead of getting a jury trial, you get to have a single police officer decide if they're satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt based on all the information that they've gathered from wherever. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very different experience. Yeah, and the line that you know you might have heard over and over this week is, you know, a Canadian can get if you get a parking ticket, you get a hearing sure. to challenge that, but a citizen doesn't get a hearing when their citizenship is going to be revoked. And where does the misrepresentation have to occur? Like, if somebody is it only in citizenship applications, or can someone lose their citizenship if they lied in their initial immigration application? Yeah, they can. Um, it, if it's, it, I mean, if it's just on your citizenship application, you would revert to a permanent resident. But a lot of times, it's a it's a misrepresentation on a permanent resident application. And so then you revert to foreign national. And the irony of all of this is that if you were a permanent resident that didn't bother to get your citizenship, you have much better process available to you um, to deal with the misrepresentation because permanent residents are able to go to uh, independent tribunal, the immigration division, and then the immigration appeal division. We know that they're able to um, present the humanitarian factors in their case. But if you... if so if you had the same misrep on the permanent resident, but then you went a step further and you got your citizenship, then under this system, you would... You're in a worse position. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and just with respect to the Munsef case, to give you an example, um, people are saying, oh, this was so long ago, they wouldn't go after them. Our office recently dealt has, has dealt with cases. I recently, like in the last couple of years, dealt with a case where they went after a person who had been a citizen for 25 years, originally came here as a refugee from Latin America... They alleged that there had been some criminality in the United States that hadn't been disclosed. Um, it was discovered when he uh, had gone to act as a surety for somebody. They discovered this criminality by running his fingerprints uh, in the United States. 
they then went to the refugee board and applied for vacation of his status as a refugee. What's vacation? Vacation is essentially similar allegations where you take away someone's status as a refugee because they they've made misrepresentations when they originally applied for the status. But the idea was that he would have, if they had vacated his status, that would have then folded over into a finding of misrepresentation and a loss of citizenship and status as a permanent resident. So all of the status would have fallen because of this misrepresentation at the um, at the time of getting the refugee status, which was almost 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this, he had been a citizen for 25 years. So this was uh, to say that they wouldn't go after somebody mm-hmm. after a long period of time. In fact, they're very in some ways, difficult cases to defend because you don't have the information, you don't have the documents. Mm-hmm. And so to say, oh, this would, wouldn't, what they will say will, this is what the forms were at the time mm-hmm. and you would have had to have declared your place mm-hmm. of birth. Right. And when you fail to declare your place of birth, that could have been relevant. Mm-hmm. And now the onus is on you to prove that you would have gotten status anyways based on the information that was in front of the board. And presumably this would apply to children as well, who didn't even have the ability to do the applications on their own. The the sins of the parents will be Mm -hmm. falling onto them. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that is one of the, something that some people have raised in Ms. Monsef's case, is that there's no way this could even be an issue, because surely they wouldn't try to revoke the status of somebody whose parents may have... uh, lied in their application, but, uh, but they I know in the cloud they're doing it all the time. Yeah. The yeah. other thing that's been argued, or some people have suggested in the media, is that there's definitely no issue because even if there was a lie, um, the lie wouldn't have impacted the ultimate result. So uh, again, without knowing what Ms. Monsef put in her refugee claim, it doesn't matter whether she grew up in Afghanistan or um, Iran because she still wouldn't have Iranian citizenship because of their laws and she still would have been persecuted. So is it the case that an officer wouldn't commence an investigation simply because the misrepresentation may or may not have materially impacted the outcome? Uh, I mean, it's Certainly, we've seen cases where it is the children, um, and where you know there are clear, there are easy ways to explain the misrepresentation. So, it, the whole point is that if someone is going to make that kind of allegation against mm-hmm. you, you need to be able to present it. That's just it. Like when these defense. when these um, reforms were put forward in the first place, it mm-hmm. was um, characterized as being trying to simplify the bureaucracy and the, the difficulty mm-hmm. of the process uh, and that sort of thing. But I think that what we're hearing is that that is not bureaucracy. That is to ensure that when a serious consequence is going to fall, that there's a there's a reasonable and real opportunity to defend. And, and also, I mean, what's also been awful is that they were sitting on a lot of these cases and not going forward with them you know, having sent the person the notice under the previous uh, regime, and then when it's become easier, now they're going to go ahead with it. So there's there's a number of cases like that too. Um, I should say that the um, the government this week, Minister McCallum this week, has said that he is open. 
right now this bill is at the Senate, and Minister McCallum has said this week that he is open to an amendment. Um, so, I mean, who knows? Um, you know, he, ha- he has said repeatedly that it is not a fair process, so it just begs the question why they are continuing to do replications, and that's why that litigation was brought this week, because the, all these people, I mean, why... Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers and BCCLA did that is because there are all these people that it, it is to stand in for the people who mm-hmm. um, cannot uh, apply to federal court. Is there any so, indication as to what the amendment would be? Which part they plan on changing? Well, the it, it, when it was done in, in committee at C, <coughs> during C6, it was there was a proposal from Carl, from the, the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers in particular, with respect to bringing in a hearing and all of those kinds of things, they, those amendments were found to be out of scope in the committee. In other words, procedurally, they, you can't substantially change and add to a bill in committee. You can make minor amendments, but there's limits as to what the committee can do without sending it back for first reading. In other words, you have to file a new bill with mm-hmm. major amendments in the House itself. So it's a procedural issue in Parliament. The Senate, in theory, and this is what they did with the Right to Die bill, is they can make a major amendment and then send it back to the House. Mm-hmm. And the Senate has said that they their rules are, that someone, a senator has said that their rules are different and that, they're, they, that they don't think that kind of amendment would be out of scope for them. And that, and Minister McCallum has publicly said that he's open to an amendment from the Senate on this. But we're not sure if it's the Carl recommendations that there be a hearing or changing the definition of misrepresentation, or we're not sure. Well, what the the, when we're talking about this amendment, we are talking about process. So, it, it, I mean, I don't know the details of what exactly what amendment is, is going to go forward, but um, definitely the uh, an amendment that was recommended by a number of groups was to have some kind of hearing. So, um, not a rollback to the previous process, but something. Yes, yeah, something. And so Carl's specific uh, submission was for it to go to the Immigration Appeal Division. And yeah, I mean, so just in terms of the, the, the Monsef case and the question that you asked earlier, I think one of the things that's important to remember is that we actually don't know how the officers are applying this because we don't have any federal court jurisprudence. Right. The federal court cases that we have deal with very exceptional cases. So if you look at like the Oberlander or like a number mm-hmm. of cases that you're dealing with, they were war criminals and like these were like major big deal kind of cases. Um, and the threshold the federal court was applying for the misrepresentations was quite high. In the case of Ms. Monsef, I think that that would, based on the information I've seen, it would never meet the federal court threshold, the threshold that's applied by the federal court. But what's going to happen now is the question is, is the harshest officer that you could have if that officer were to find that this was a material misrepresentation and revoke her citizenship, the federal court would then look at that and say, does that fall at the outer edge of a range of reasonable outcomes? And so what you have to ask yourself is, if you had the harshest officer who was then judicially reviewed by the harshest federal court judge, could her revocation fall at the outer edge of a range of reasonable outcomes and be upheld? Maybe. We don't know. So that is the short answer to the question of could her citizenship be stripped under the current regime? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Let's uh, move on to some other topics uh, that are in the Carl. And 
For those who still aren't used to the acronym, CARL is the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, uh, submissions. And Lobat, I know there were a few that you wanted to touch upon, starting with the bars to people accessing, certain people accessing the uh, Refugee Appeal Division. Yeah, I should say first that the 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 Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyer brief was was uh, done by lots of lawyers and academics mm-hmm. across the country, um, and the whole the reason that we felt that it would be useful is that the previous government had made so many changes that just trying to get our head around well, where do you even start with reform, um, and once you start having that discussion, it's there's a lot of different issues you have to cover. And actually, as we were doing it, some of the issues in the um, Carl Brief are not, uh, they're long-standing issues, not necessarily ones that, uh, so for example, CBSA, uh, Canada Source Agency Oversight and Detention, those are long-standing issues, they're not uh, necessarily because of changes from the previous government. Um, you want to talk about RADVARS first? Or if there's another topic <laughs> I think you want to start with. With, not, I don't want to run your show, but I think you should talk about uh, designated country of origin first, only okay. because that's one of the bars. And so yeah, no, let's start with designated country later. of origin. Right? Let's start we there. agree? Well, I, I agree. I think, and I think designated country of origin is a good place to start because okay. the, the Hill Times just reported that apparently uh, McCallum is open to dumping the, the, the designated country of origin regime. Mm. Yes. So why don't, why don't you explain what it is? Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, the Conservative government, for the, the first time ever in our uh, refugee law, created a different procedural and substantive uh, rights for people depending on what country they were coming from. So, if you, the end, the way it was written up, it was up to the minister to decide which countries could go on a list, a so-called safe country list, this is the designated country of origin uh, list. And those, if you were from that country and you made a claim, then you had different uh, guarantees through the process. So one of them was that you had shorter timelines. The other was that you didn't have access to the newly formed Refugee Appeal Division. Uh, and the other was that you the, there, there were. Uh, in, they also introduced bars in being able to make other applications once your refugee claim had failed. And for those pe- claimants that were coming from designated countries of origin, the time period was triple that of claimants from uh, other countries. And so, um, the impact of it. Well, first, it generated a bunch of litigation. And one of the, oh, and sorry, the, the other big difference was they had way less access to health care. Um, the conservative government did health care cuts, and then they specifically, claimants from designated countries of origin were, had even less access to the minimal uh, amount of health care that was provided. So there was litigation um, challenging the health care cuts, um, and, which was ultimately successful for the claimants and one of the findings of that litigation was that it that the um, the uh, distinction between the designated country of origin uh, claimants and other claimants in their access to health care was discriminatory and so unconstitutional and then a second challenge was access to the uh, appeal division 
at the, the Refugee Appeal Division. And again, the federal court said it's discriminatory to not allow access for, the, for those from designated country of origins. So those two pillars of this regime fell. And so now, currently, without any um, legislative changes, claimants from designated country of origin have access to an appeal. And they also have access to health care. That changed anyway when the new government came in. Uh, but remaining is the fact that their hearings are scheduled faster and they don't have they have a longer period to wait before they can make other applications when they're if their refugee claim is denied. And just to step back, like again, the the rationale provided for doing this was the combating bogus refugee claims exactly. too. So and this is in a way the tie-in between our first topic and the second one is this notion of needing to take away procedural safeguards for the purposes of protecting program integrity. And that was sort of like the, the overarching theme in a way. Yeah, and that we want to be able to get rid of these false claim claimants faster. And so another interesting... Well, isn't the list only, it's, it's only countries like Sweden and Norway that are on the list, isn't that? Isn't that right? <laughs> no. There's no. There's no actually right, actual no, refugee no. housing. <laughs> no, but that's a good a good point. That, it, you know, it, you would think, you know, with that when you say so-called safe countries, in fact, they put on the list countries like Hungary and Mexico that we know have extremely uh, dismal human rights records. So I don't do a lot of, or any, uh, initial refugee claims. The timeline that the Conservatives brought in, are they being met? Um, No, they're not. Um, They're, I mean, in... I think in our region, like in, in, in Vancouver, in the Western region, they are being met better than they are in out east. Out east, there's new backlogs being created. The other problem is, especially out east, there's a whole group of claimants that are called the legacy claims. So these are people who had not yet, they were under the old system, and so since they weren't subjected to the new timeline, then their cases just have Language. just not been scheduled. Mm. Uh, and so they're there's about... prioritize those that they are under the higher administrative standard. Yeah. Exactly. And so there's like about 5,000 or 6,000 um, legacy claims that are just... And it's awful for those people because, you know, they're in here four or five years and they don't... They cannot have their claim. They're separate. A lot of them are separated from their family. Also, just even the... Their, the substance of their claim, like it may impact the, their, um, the chance of success on their claim for no fault of their own. And uh, so that's why, you know, Canadian, uh, Canadian Council for Refugees uh, has come up with a proposal where they're asking the government to create a class. Um, so basically a kind of really expedited humanitarian process for those people. So, in that so that you don't they don't have to go through they don't give up their refugee claim but that they have an opportunity to obtain status through an expedited process mm-hmm. um, and Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers supports that position. I, I'm really interested in the part um, the, the sort of conversation about how the expedited timelines have impeded. First of all, the right to counsel, but also mm-hmm. how they kind of fundamentally contradict the notion of dealing with litigants who are facing trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it seems to be kind of at cross purposes that you're supposed to get to the point of being able to discuss trauma faster. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it is, um, you know, the, the, and, it, and the way these things often work is like, yes, of course, there are exceptions and you can make applications to extend time, but, you know, it's all those people that fall through the cracks that don't know that they can do that, that don't have a lawyer that knows that they can do that, and, you know, they're going to be subjected to this extremely fast process um, where, you know, the, the impact of their trauma cannot, won't be able to be figured out. On the issue of access to counsel, that's interesting. Peter and I, um, along with Susan Bostad, um, wrote, uh, uh, did a research report on access to counsel with these kind of, these changes in the timelines. And that's the, the Law Foundation report? That you yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. And one of the, I mean, what's been... Uh, the issue of figuring out, like, you know, what's the impact of access on access to counsel is a bit challenging because um, if you just look at the straight numbers, it's not that different, at least here. I can't, we were just talking about Western region. Um, but then when we did interviews, uh, and our interviews were with experienced counsel, um, experienced refugee lawyers, what we learned was that a lot of them were, all of them said that they were reluctant yeah. to take uh, claimants that were uh, DCOs from designated country because of the faster timelines. So fine, your numbers will show up that all these people have representation or 80% of these people have representation, but you will not, um, but you can't tell from that what kind of representation sure. they're getting. And I think that one of the problems that I see with the DCOs in particular and the faster timelines is that it's countries like Hungary and Mexico um, yeah. that where you you really need experienced counsel sure. and that it's actually the cases, because these cases don't fail, when you talk about bogus refugees, a failed Mexican claim or a failed Hungarian claim usually turns on either state protection or internal flight alternative. So Mexico internal flight alternative and state protection are huge issues. And you need to understand those concepts in a pretty, and you need to understand Mexico very well. You need to understand how the Mexican authorities work. How does the federal police work? How does the, the relationship between the state police and the federal police? How do the cartels, how are their regions, like when you talk about territories of cartels and all of those kinds of things, State protection and IFA, an internal flight alternative, are very complex issues, in particular with a country like Mexico. And so when you talk about trying to prepare a claim in that period of time, someone saying, well, look, I don't have time to prepare this, those are actually the people who need competent counsel the most. Because when you're dealing with a Yazidi woman from Syria, I... Overall, the question is, are you, Yazidi, are you a Yazidi woman from Syria? And if you are, then the claim is accepted. It's, there's not any further analysis that needs to be done. There's no subtlety to the claim. It's genocide. It's, you know, persecution. It's, I mean, it's the kind of claim, and not, nothing against Steve, but that, you know, I, I would expect <laughs> that you might be constantly doing... Uh, without any experience, no without any, without no offense, Steve. No, no, I'm not saying no, 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 no. no. It's because of yeah. your great intellect. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying, I'm saying that you wouldn't need to study IFA and you wouldn't need to study state protection and the subtleties of, of refugee law because even not having done a claim, if all you would need to demonstrate is that this was a Yazidi woman from Syria. But I wouldn't know where the claim was physically. 
No, um, so <laughs> there are going to be people who are listening who will say, okay, well, what do they envision? Because I can hear the arguments that the system before, especially from DCOs, had a high rate of abandonment, many years of people going through a refugee claim followed by subsequent removal procedures and pre-removal risk assessments. Like, do you envision a system, like would your ideal system, if you know it off the top of your head, be uh, one in which there are no timelines no, um, actually, our uh, our position, a lot of refugee advocates' position is that the uh, timelines are good. It wasn't good before when because the process before was too long. So pe- people's claims were not being scheduled, and you had this issue of family separation, people really wanting to get their claims heard. Um, so we don't have an issue with a timeline. It just has to be a reasonable timeline, and there also has to be uh, an ability to... to get out of the timeline when depending on the yeah. individual circumstances yeah. and so yeah, we don't recommend that we go back and in fact in the Carl brief we're actually recommending a you know a, a, a pretty fast timeline um, the, the the timeline isn't the issue it's with the with the designated country of origin it's having a different timeline for them that's incredibly fast and is your problem that Mexico like you mentioned before the countries like Norway and Switzerland Mm-hmm. Is the concept the problem, or is it just some countries that maybe shouldn't be on the list are on the list? I mean, for, just to come back to the timeline issue, you need to understand how the backlog developed at the board in the first place, and that was because board members, the board was under-resourced. Mm-hmm. There weren't enough board members to hear the claims, mm-hmm. and if it had been properly resourced, the timelines wouldn't have been a problem. Exactly. It's very realistic to hear most claims within 90 days or so, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not, un- and some claims take longer. Some claims need more time. Mm-hmm. That's fine. The problem before was that you didn't have the board members to hear the claims. And so artificial timelines, I don't, you know, I don't know that they help that much one way or the other. In terms of the, the Swedish and Swiss claims, quite frankly, there's such a small number that they're not really, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. The DCOs were not brought in. The designated countries of origin was not brought in to deal with the overwhelming number of Swedish claims. That we just don't have the numbers or a drop in the bucket. The only country that actually shows up in the statistics in any kind of serious number is the United States. But when you actually look at the at, at what that is, the vast majority of them are either people with mental health issues mm-hmm. or minors minors who were born in the United States to claimants from other countries. So you're talking about an Afghan family that stayed in the United States and happened to have a child born there before they made it to Canada. But otherwise, the numbers are negligible. Mm-hmm. So our position is get rid of the uh, the whole the regime. It doesn't make sense to keep it. Um, you know, the only thing remaining is this faster timeline. Why would you have this whole separate system? The Immigration Refugee Board also wants to get rid of it. Um, it's made their jobs a lot harder to have these two streams. Uh, I'd also say that, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, it's hopeful to hear Minister McCallum talking about getting rid of it because in the, the mandate letter that was sent to the minister talked about um, creating an a expert panel uh, to, 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 to make the designations. And you know, our view is that, what's the point? Yeah, it doesn't. You know, 
I mean, really, really create this whole thing. It does feel like it was just a very thinly veiled effort directed at Mexico and Hungary. Like that's yes. where it was. That's what the intention was. And I think that you need to also, um, just in terms of like putting this in the context of our legal scheme, um, you know, what does it mean to be a genuine refugee from a non-refugee producing country? Like it's creating this. Uh, it really is about stigma, and that's why. Yeah, um, that it's it's so offensive that uh, exactly no, and it just it, it, the whole uh, you know the principle behind it is that each claim has to be decided individually, mm. and so when you do this, it creates a kind of bias against certain kinds of claims. I mean, certainly, I've had successful claims from South Korea, from Chile, when they belong to particular uh, social groups that were. Um, discriminated against, persecuted against. I think for uh, just for certain for the audience who may not understand, like okay, South Korea is a democracy, Chile is a democracy. In those claims, is it fear from the government or fear from people within the country who the government can't protect them from? Yeah, it's exactly. It's the second one. So in South Korea, it was a mental uh, health case. Um, so the woman had a mental illness and. Uh, the the type of treatment she was subjected to uh, was found to amount to persecution. And that's something that I, certainly before I became an immigration lawyer, didn't realize that refugees, uh, it's not always just, it, it's not just people who are fleeing a state. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, and then with Chile and a lot of other countries, there um, it was a, a case around domestic violence and the state not protecting. Yeah. No, and the whole regime, the whole laws around it made started to make a lot more sense once I realized that refugee is not only people fleeing, you know, a dictatorship. Or, exactly. Uh, well, in be fact, a- many, many of the, the biggest refugee-producing countries, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and to a certain extent Syria, people aren't fleeing their government. They're fleeing the Taliban, they're fleeing the ISIS, they're fleeing whatever other non-government actors um, are in those countries. Even when you talk about the big countries, you're not yeah. talking Somalia. You're not usually talking about the Somalian government. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I mean, there's also something about this, like how stagnant it looks at this picture of what is a functioning democracy, too, because it's kind of like saying, you know, this this person is not capable of abusing another person, you know, like as if mm-hmm. there's, some, there's some defining features that mean that they could never put another person at risk, you know, it, it's a bit, mm-hmm. as a concept, it's a bit dubious. Yeah. Peter, here's your chance to weigh in on whether uh-huh. the U.S. is a functioning, functioning democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I had lots of things to say. But I do think that it's kind of what I was saying about the citizenship thing is that these are not just bureaucracy. Like these are things that are supposed to be part of our notion as a functioning democracy. That they're, you know, so somebody from some country makes a dubious claim. Well, there's a procedure to say no, that's dubious, you know, or that's not genuine, and off you go. The, the importance of having that process there is mm-hmm. a thing in itself. Yeah. Although the challenge, I, I guess, in one of my questions for, for, for you, I guess, for the others as well, with respect to Mexico, we lift the visa requirement mm-hmm. for Mexico, and the number of claims start to go up for five, 6,000 a year. What's, what do we... I mean, that's, that's where you start to see visa requirements imposed. I mean, that's why we require visas from Pakistan, from... Afghanistan, from Syria, from, you know, you, 
So if you lift the visa requirement, or if you do away with the DCO regime, can you and will there be the political will to lift the visa requirement from Mexico? And I'm pretty sure that when they announce the lifting of the Mexican visa, there's actually an announcement that if claims exceed two or three thousand, that the visa requirement will be imposed again, which is, I thought, a very interesting Mm. way of approaching things to almost penalize all the citizens of a country because the most vulnerable are fleeing. Right. Yeah, no. I mean, I I think even uh, empirically, the D, like having the D, there's an, isn't evidence that having the DCO regime um, made a difference in terms of having people those uh, DCO claimants removed quicker. Because uh, I think I can't remember if it was the uh, Immigration Refugee Board report or an IRCC report, but there was a review and. They found that the that there was no appreciable difference in processing times. Well, I think the DCO regime came after the imposition of the visa in Mexico's case, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the stats would have been otherwise. I think the timelines are just speculating that the quick. If the concern were claimants who came basically as a way to get a work permit. Yeah. under the old processing times and they were able to work here for a lengthy period and we did meet people who maybe had a claim when they filed but ultimately you know were, the reasons had passed and they were now benefiting from this work permit for a lengthy period I think the claim the shortened period mm-hmm. will be a significant enough deterrent mm-hmm. um, yeah that's exactly that's exactly what we say is that it's not um the time, the the fact that it's shorter processing is is the difference, and we're not arguing that they should get rid of shorter processing. It's not an argument to keep the DCO regime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, go ahead. I was oh, gonna uh, say, to move on to other. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, uh, in the build up to today, uh, I noticed that you had won a case in federal court on danger opinions, which ties nicely into what we're discussing today. So, uh, a refugee, you know, a refugee a person comes and claims refugee status, or they're resettled as a refugee from abroad. They're now living in Canada, and um, well, it's just you know, the obvious one is they commit a crime, and the government um, wants to now remove them, notwithstanding the fact that they're a refugee who can't be sent back to their country of origin. Can you describe the process, I guess, of danger opinion? Sure, um, I'll try. Um, they, they, so because we have the principle of non refoulement, uh, that means that we cannot send back refugees. So there's an exception to that, and the exception is in the cases of serious criminality. So if the government wants to remove someone, they would first have to show that they have uh, that they are inadmissible on the basis of serious criminality, which means you want me to get into that detail? <laughs> um, sure. I'll, okay, I'll, sure. which which means that they have to have been uh, convicted of a crime that's punishable by uh, ten years or more, or that they had served a sentence of more than six months. And so, in addition to that finding of serious uh, serious criminality, for they would also have to be found to be a danger by a minister's delegate. 
And so that's the danger opinion process. So usually when you, they begin the process of a danger opinion, they already have a finding that you are inadmissible based on serious criminality. But this case that you're talking about, the issue with it was um, about was that he was the he his sentence was six months, not more than six months, and so the 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 opinion was grounded in a conviction that didn't was not actually serious criminality. So it was quite technical that part. But the problem then was, so I thought I saw that and I was like, wow, like. The end, like, you know, like, it's like never happens, right? Like, there's like clear error of law. Like, this is just wrong. Like, you just read it. I had to like read the section like so many times. Like, no, it was like more than six months. Six, he's only sentenced to six months. So then I, um, but then the problem was in his file, like, you know, 20 years before, he did in fact have a conviction for a crime that, you know, they were saying would have amounted to serious criminality. Of course, the minister's delegate wasn't writing about that. I mean, it was in the file. And so what was argued was, well, it doesn't matter that this one didn't meet it. it the fact that there was this other one 20 years ago means that you still fine to do the danger opinion. Um, and we argued that, no, that doesn't make sense because the, the person didn't have notice that that was the issue. We don't even know what the transitional provisions would have been. We don't know if there was an abusive process argument. We don't even know if the officer would have bothered, given that they didn't um, do anything about it for 20 years on the other conviction. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then the other argument was just um, that in the course of his most recent criminal conviction, the trial judge made, like, actually had to turn his mind to the fact on sentencing, are you a danger to the community? And found, no, you're not a danger to the community. Mm-hmm. And I'm sentencing you for these other rationales, but not for uh, because I think you're a danger to the community. And so our argument was just, well, you certainly would have to, like, maybe you don't have to agree with him, but you certainly at least would have to consider the fact that this person, like, that heard actual oral testimony from him um, was... Uh, came to this conclusion, the very question that you're actually faced with, which is whether he's a danger. And is a danger to the opinion, or a danger to the country, mm-hmm. or a danger to the public, is that limited to, say, cases where there's a violent offense, or do these get issued for people who are, say, I don't know, they haven't paid their taxes, and so they've been convicted for tax evasion, or some sort of bank fraud, um, are those the types of cases that a danger opinion could be rendered in? I, well, I, I don't know about for tax evasion, but if there for a series of frauds where you consistently had victims and you were, you know, like there, there is a point when you pose a threat to the Canadian public. The vast majority of the cases that you're dealing with are violent offenses, though, mm-hmm. um, for the most part. But there's... A, I mean, I don't know that frauds and I, you know, those types of things couldn't lend themselves to that kind of opinion. But it's not typically where it arises. It's typically not. The cases that you see, the vast majority of them are violent offenses or sexual offenses. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, the other interesting question with respect to the danger opinions, and I think is, is worth talking about, is with respect to the balancing. And, and that's with respect to whether or not... Because the idea is that the danger opinion is enough to be able to send a refugee back without stripping them of their refugee status. So in other words, you don't actually have to 
go through the either the cessation or the vacation processes to either say they lied to get their status or that the the basis for their claim has now ceased in uh, in the legal sense. The onus then turns on them to prove that they're at risk going back to their country. And what's more interesting, or more interesting, um, disturbing in some ways, is the balancing that the Supreme Court has suggested since Suresh can take place, where you say, well, even though you're at risk, you're a bad person, so we're going to send you back to be tortured and killed. And the balancing of how severe the persecution is versus how bad a person you are um, generally is avoided by exactly, uh, and I don't know what was done in this particular case, but and maybe mm-hmm. you can talk to that, but usually the way they avoid that is to say, well, you're not at risk, so you're a danger, Yes. and we think we can send you back into northern Somalia and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Do you have any more comments? You don't need more comments. But that's, uh, I mean, for me, that was something that I found, I mean, I found very offensive when I first read Suresh in high school, in, uh, sorry, in law school. <laughs> in high school, yeah, not quite that. You're a nerd. Just getting back at but going back to Steve's question, though, was about um, you were talking about the, the the danger opinion and what kind of an offense. Like the one that they were attempting to connect it to in Lobat's mm-hmm. case was a drug related offense, which I mean, I guess marginally you could say mm-hmm. is a public issue, but um, you know, it wasn't a violent offense, and so. Um, but is there a standard? Like, what is again? This is another administrative mm-hmm. decision that's being made too. So it's again coming back to our theme of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the actual test that's being applied in determining is just serious criminality uh, equal to a danger opinion or is there some additional regulation in terms of what needs to be there well the yeah stuff's always interesting yeah yeah I mean it's it was it's yeah I think that's the thing like all these different officers are applying it differently I mean there is jurisprudence that says that it has to be um that it must be read, that this exception to refoulement should be, non refoulement should be read restrictively. But, you know, <laughs> not sure that's always the case. Yeah. I mean, it's um, what you'll find in the, in the discussions around this is the ties between the drug trafficking and violence and other impacts on the community that makes it dangerous is essentially that's the kind of rhetoric that you'll find with respect to cocaine trafficking for example or with respect to um, and so it is uh, and it's difficult to say that that's inconsistent with other UN treaties that treat drug trafficking in a similar way where there's a very strong war on like the 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 global war on drugs has been pushed a lot through the UN, and that position, although it's somewhat shifting now, um, and I recently heard a great talk by Louise Arbour about the discussion with Louise Arbour about this, um, where you, it's not there yet. The international community isn't there yet, and if you look at the international treaties, which is where you're going to interpret the convention. Um, it's difficult to argue that drug trafficking isn't a problem. Like, it isn't something that would be intended to be covered mm-hmm. um, by the international by international law. 
And so then you're coming back into Canadian law and trying to make arguments around it. Let's just say that it wouldn't be the... If your client's been caught with two kilos of cocaine, trying to argue that he's not a danger is likely going to be a challenge. Not that I wouldn't try it. <laughs> the two kilos of coke are trying me. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. 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 What I did to Steve. Yeah. 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 So is there? Do, sorry, do we want to? Was there? Well, there was only one other question that I was hoping that that we could ask from Lobat, which is that the other the other bar was the agency the agency and Paul bar, mm-hmm. but just the idea to. About, from my perspective, it's always the whole idea that you have to know whether or not the persecution that you faced is going to rise to the level that is going to be considered a refugee, a positive refugee refugee decision. Like these are yeah. by no means obvious determinations. Right. But you have to kind of commit to one process or the other. Yeah. Is it just um, that you need compassionate relief, or does it rise to the level of? And it's a really tricky thing. You know, I hear lawyers talking all the time, really experienced, you know, brilliant lawyers trying to figure out, like, is it going to be that or am I, am I hamstringing my client by choosing the wrong path? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I just had someone in yesterday where that was the issue. So the issue being that, you know, it now in the old days, you could just do both. You could do a refugee claim and a humanitarian application together. And now you have to make this choice. And so, you know, in the, especially in the cases of a sponsorship breakdown, so the sponsorship breakdown, those are, um, you know, they often are strong humanitarian applications because the whole argument is that were it not for the abuse, this person would, this woman would have become a permanent resident because there was a genuine sponsorship and we have evidence of the violence. So it's clear she should become a permanent resident. That's a strong humanitarian. But then if she also tells you, I am at risk at, in my home country, it's like, well... I don't know, like maybe that's a strong refugee claim. And, you know, it's true that as a refugee claimant, you actually have a status here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have access to all sorts of um, services that you'll need. Whereas when you're applying for a humanitarian application and you have no other status in Canada, then you, you're here without status. So, sure. um, but you, at the same time, if you choose to do the refugee claim process, then, um, you know, the process is fast, and then it can lead to you uh, a denial, and then what, you could appeal that, mm-hmm. but then there's a restriction on when you can file the humanitarian application. Right. Not, so, you know, because then you have, if you're not from a, a designated country of origin uh, country, you have a one-year bar. You know, if you have a child, you might be able to apply for an exception and, and, and file that, but it's... Um, yeah, it's just a lot to consider. Like, I felt like the, the I, I didn't, you know, I tried to explain all those different factors and helping um, the client come to a decision. But, you know, I I, I, I felt really mm-hmm. awful kind of doing it because it just is like, yeah, there is no right answer no. here. I, I really... And it gets so pretty difficult. legalistic pretty quick because you're trying to explain, well, this will be reviewed yeah. on this standard and that will be reviewed on that. I know it's the same story both yeah. ways, but it's a whole different process and there are different... Yeah, and then process. if you get rejected on the humanitarian, it's you have to go to judicial review and you have to get a leave requirement, whereas on refugee, you can go to appeal it's right away. It's, it's well, not only that, it's also like been especially offensive, this idea that you can't do multiple applications because 
we've seen that the government will sometimes terminate existing applications. Mm. And uh, yeah. when the federal skilled worker application stream, people who had been here um, had maintained status here through various ways because of those applications and process, suddenly had them all terminated. And uh, we're aware of a few who filed refugee claims and immediately became an issue of, well, why didn't why did you, you delay? Why did you delay? Well, because mm -hmm. it's very tricky to have multiple, especially economic claims going while you also have a refugee claim. Yeah. Provincial nomination program won't even accept claims from people who have ongoing refugee claims. And this whole making people choose in a world where the rules are changing and where streams, applications can just be terminated For sure. is super problematic. And conditions in that country might evolve even after you've already been granted that status. So it's really, it's mm -hmm. very complex. And I think that when it was put forward, the ban, the proposal mm -hmm. even, it was done on the basis that they didn't want to further delay removals. Well, we all know that an H&C does not delay removals. Mm -hmm. So I just, again, I wonder, like, is, is Carl still kind of like, let's go back to the whole notion of um, mm -hmm. what is the rationale for making people choose when it's really, mm -hmm. um, there's no downside to having hardship assessed by one person and fees are being paid, you know? So I just, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I know our position is, you know, get rid of, get rid of all these restrictions on humanitarian and it's kind of antithetical to the idea of like the only place where you're supposed to go to hey like I don't fit anywhere can you please like <laughs> look at my case and then they they've added a bunch of restrictions on what you can actually present and when and mm -hmm. well it's especially difficult for me in the, in the borderline cases where yeah. It depends on the board member you get as to which side of the line you're going to fall on. And like sexual orientation claims are often like this when you're dealing with those countries where it's definitely severe discrimination. Mm -hmm. Maybe it meets the level of persecution, but it's definitely hardship. I mean, the, the situation for, you know, when you talk about the situation for gays in certain countries is that it's not outright persecution depending on the board member you get. But other board members will say, oh yeah, that's persecution for, for sure. sure. Mm -hmm. And then you have to choose. But and you'll, you see, say, you'll um, see judges writing lengthy decisions about is this extreme discrimination mm -hmm. or is this persecution? And the fact that the burden lies on the applicant to make mm -hmm. the correct determination from the onset. Otherwise, they face like really serious consequences mm -hmm. down the road. Is uh, You know, our courts are struggling with these ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, so is there anything, I guess there's lots of other things we could discuss, sure. uh, but uh, I, I think we'll uh, try and wrap it up at this point. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much thank Lobat, you. for joining yeah, us. It's been great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good banter. Thank did you. you have anything last that you wanted to, was there anything last you wanted to add? So you're not a fan of listening to these, like, these bantering podcasts. What about participating? Uh, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you everyone for listening. Between the uh, time that we recorded that episode with Lobat and now, there's been a few developments in the area of citizenship revocation law that Peter and I wanted to quickly discuss before we upload this. The first is that uh, it's been reported in the Toronto Sun that Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada has opened a file on Minister Monsef with regards to, I guess whether she committed misrepresentation at any point in her refugee, immigration, or citizenship application. We don't know anything else beyond that, uh, although I think you were saying that you read that her office has confirmed that she hasn't received a formal revocation notice. 
Yeah, that does seem to be the indication from the from the spokesperson from her office. And uh, the other development, which is a frustrating one for many, is that uh, despite many public pronouncements from Minister McCallum that he thinks that there is a current flaw in the citizenship revocation process, uh, he has decided and his department has decided to go full steam ahead with revocations uh, and not to wait for changes to the law that he acknowledges should be made uh, before resuming or commencing any further citizenship revocations. Which has a couple of interesting implications. One is that anybody who does get a letter from uh, citizenship and immigration on that they're considering a citizenship revocation would need to join the litigation in turn to put the process on hold and the process will be put on hold automatically as the the litigation proceeds uh, it had puts it may put minister monsef in an interesting position if she does get one of these fairness letters because the advice that any competent counsel would give her would likely be to join the litigation and put it on hold and not subject herself to this unfair process uh, that would be a very public uh, statement on behalf of a minister if she were to join the litigation, uh, which would be a very public move uh, and would require a very public move on her part. Um, just to be clear, as, as both uh, Steve and I have said before, neither of us have any particular position on Minister Monsef's case. Um, this is more about the process, and our, at least my position is that nobody should be subjected to this unfair process, but it will put the minister in a rather, un, uh, a rather difficult position where the, the legal advice she would likely get would be to join the litigation, but the political implications of joining that litigation would be quite significant. Yeah, and I, uh, the only thing I'd add is I wish uh, I see on social media a lot people defending, uh, you know, Miss Monsef and saying that it would be ridiculous if revocation applied in her circumstances. And that's true. And I just, I wish that outrage would be as directed towards some of the uh, other cases where people in similar situations whose parents may not have been completely forthcoming or truthful in their refugee or immigration or citizenship applications are facing revocation. With that, thank you for joining us on Borderlines today. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thank you to Robin Bager and Funk in the Trunk for our music, and to our podmaster, Makeli Higgins, who's helping us to up the level of our sound uh, for, the fu- for future podcasts.